So if we accept the presupposition that self-sabotage could be caused by parental, parentally induced injunctions that are then being dished out and maintained and disciplined via the superego, how do you overcome that? You know, if you're running a series of rules that says thou shalt not ever and thou shalt always, how do you deal with that? In a sense, it is a case of challenging and undoing limited beliefs. These aren't beliefs in the way that we would normally think of beliefs. These things that we're dealing with here are architecturally the structure of your internal map of reality. And I can't think of a better word than beliefs, maybe internal coordinates, maybe internal structures. It sounds a bit pompous that like internal coordinates or internal structures, but it is a question of challenging beliefs. Whenever you hear yourself saying or thinking always and never in relation to a belief about how the world works, you're probably running into a wall that is an internal structure in your map of reality. People always should, whatever. I don't think I have ever, da, 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 uh, rules, and they need to be challenged. I would think that with a good philosophical approach to the problem, you'd probably get a lot of headway, you know, if you actually sort of became philosophical, engaged in critical thinking, which is the skill of critically reviewing your own thoughts about reality. So you have a thought and then you critically review it. You go, how do I know that that is true? When I use the word never, do I literally mean never? When I use the word always, do I actually mean always? Can I think of examples where that isn't true? It's kind of like um, rigid, absolutist, dogmatic thoughts. When we become rigid, absolutist, and dogmatic, we may be running up against a wall, an internal structure, an internal coordinate in our map of reality that is too rigid and too extreme and too rooted in black and white thinking simply because it is based in trauma. It may have been something that was traumatically brainwashed into us. It may have been something that was imposed upon us by a narcissistic, fascist, fascistic, um, tyrannical, megalomaniac, um, megalomaniacal, maniacal, I guess that would be pronounced, personality. So we could do small steps. We could, you know, we could wash the belief and the structure in objectivity and say, how do I know that this is true? Good goals do not show anger because anger is an ugly emotion. How do I know that this is true? Is there ever a case where this is not true? When we say good goals, am I attached to the idea of being a good goal? If I am, why am I? How am I? When am I? Where am I? This is not normal thought stuff. People don't regularly, I don't think the average person thinks like this, but it'd be pretty cool if the average person did. And if, you know, you could even have friends or maybe even groups where you could bring stuff up like this and then just go through like a Socratic method of saying, oh, okay, what is it that you've noticed that you have a limiting belief? What is the limiting belief? How does it manifest? When does it manifest? Where, where does it manifest? And uh, what do you gain from it? 
this is a good philosophical question to ask as well. What do I gain from holding this belief that is negative? And you might say, I don't gain anything from holding onto a negative belief. It just sucks. Be philosophical, soften, detach. Look again. Look at yourself as though you were not yourself. Look at yourself as though you were another person. Look at yourself and play because it's your mind. You can do whatever you want. Play that you're a psychoanalyst. And what would a psychoanalyst think of this? What would a life coach think of this? What would a philosopher think of this? And you can think of individuals that you know, that you follow, that you like. You'd be like, if they came in the room and I told them that I believed this and they wanted to challenge me, how would they challenge me? What questions would they ask? These are good exercises because they develop our neuroplasticity and they develop our capacity to think rationally and they develop internal boundaries indirectly. So you're actually growing muscles here, philosophical muscles and philosophical strengths that indirectly will cause you to be stronger in reviewing that which you hold to be true about yourself and about the world and your interactions with the world. And it is a very, very worthwhile endeavor. It is very, very worth doing, though at times it may be hard. It might hurt. It might suck. You know, we might come to realize that, oops, through my trauma, I've been engaging in projective identification. I have been projecting negative attributes onto people who have come to me when they were neutral, when they were not coming at me with bad intent, but I projected a negative intent onto their actions. And now I'm in conflict with them or I've lost that relationship with them or, or whatever it is. So when self-sabotage is present and you think, I'm pretty sure I'm self-sabotaging, you can look at when, where, and how you're doing it. And you can look at the beliefs that hold that self-sabotage in place. You might say that, you know, um, I don't want to, let's broad, I don't want to succeed. Why? I don't feel like I should fly too high. I think it's unchristian. I think it's ungodly. I think it's against Greek philosophy. Remember Lazarus, we shouldn't fly too high. We shouldn't challenge um, the, the, the sun god. We shouldn't fly too high because we'll be broken and we'll be cast down um, for our um, cheekiness. The God figure, the father figure, the mother figure, the goddess figure will say, hey, cheeky, and then slap you back down to earth. So you might say, okay, I'm not going to fly too high. What does that get you? And your initial response would be, well, it's a negative belief. It doesn't gain me anything. Look again, be philosophical, soften, be detached. Second person situation. What does believing I shall not and will not fly too high gain a person? Gains them safety. Gains them the luxury of not having to push too far outside of the comfort zone. It gains them the luxurious trap of comfort, the uh, luxurious prison of comfort being pushed, you know, particularly successful. Like if we <laughs> randomly pulled out success, cause it's usually where self-sabotage is mentioned, um, being pushed outside of the comfort zone and being more successful in, in your endeavors. Well, what does that mean? It means more work. It means more responsibility. It means more, uh, of people having access to you. Now, for those of us with CPTSR who want to hide inside of a comfy, dark cave, it might not be that fun to be called outside of that cave 
five times a day into the light blinking to have to do adult and responsible things. Might be even less comfortable to have guests within that comfortable cave who are suddenly coming in. And because you've pushed outside the comfort zone, there's nothing you can do about it. I think sometimes when people are successful and they want to self-sabotage their own success, it, it can be for very simple reasons like that. You know, they don't want the pressure. They don't want what it, what it actually brings with it. And sometimes seeing as we're talking about being philosophical, it's worth remembering that one of the many logical fallacies that the human brain will fall back to is, I don't know what you would call this logical fallacy. It is a logical fallacy. Maybe it does have a proper name, but there is a gap between our fantasy of how things will be and the reality of how things will be. There is always a big gap. Well, you would hope that with time, with emotional maturity and experience and a good philosophical outlook, the gap between how, th how you think a thing will be, a situation, a person, a job, an experience or success itself will be, and how it actually is in real life, you would want that gap to close. But we do tend to have these gaps. When we conceptualize things, sometimes, depending on the subject that we're conceptualizing, we can think about it in a way that is very two-dimensional very simplistic, very flat, that has absurdly strong boundaries. And then when you actually engage in the new thing, the thing that you tell yourself and that you tell your friends that you want, so it's a new job, you find that the experience is nothing like the flat image that you had inside of your mind. It's multidimensional. It's a phenomena. It's a process. It's an experience. It's not flat and tied to the wall inside your brain. It's something that you end up ice skating through it has a front a back an up a down a roundabout and there are multiple layers and multiple levels to it you're now within the process of that thing being that's i don't know what that logical fallacy is but when i'm talking to people and i notice in my own life i've fallen into that many many times and then you come to actually live the thing and you go "Ooh, I didn't know it would be like this Ooh, I wasn't expecting this element here i wasn't expecting this to be there you would hope that with time and with experience that gap between how you think a thing will be and how it actually is will close in the same way that over time, our philosophical aspiration, and you could even say for some people, it's a spiritual aspiration is to make the map of reality that we have more closely match the reality that is in the external world. It will never fully match it. Of course, it's just an aspiration. It's just something we should move towards. When your map of reality looks nothing like reality, we have a word for that. We call it insanity, or we call it delusion, or we call it psychosis. When your map of reality kind of looks quite close to the way reality is, that is usually referred to as sanity, as being functional, as being successful. Um, you know, the colloquialisms are you have your shit together, you know what you're doing, you know what's up. Um, and that's the aspiration we should try and make that which is outside of our head match that which is on the inside of our head as closely as possible so that we're able to function properly in the world devoid of neurotic and uh, uh, not useful and uh, distracting responses to an to projections that are not there in reality they're just what we're perceiving inside of our own heads i believe over time with developing a stronger philosophy becoming emotionally mature, closing the gap between fantasy 
fancy sometimes might even be just childish notions and uh, magical thinking and stuff that we're bringing forward from our past even um uh, or that we've been sold we've been marketed to we've been sold to so it's the fancy and closing the gap and bringing it close to reality there are spiritual schools and philosophical schools that aspire to this very very directly and very openly i think the best known one is the the zen buddhist tradition the entire purpose of all of the discipline is to make your the, your ideas about reality come closer to the reality that's there and how do they do it do it with a very literal direct methodology called zen practice where you sit and you meditate and you look at the wall and you breathe and you go i'm sat i'm meditating i'm looking at the wall and i'm breathing and now i'm blinking and now i'm looking and there's a feedback loop that you're attempting to develop of course so the thoughts will come and go that is just a feedback loop of only that which is happening in the present moment which is why they say things that drive cptsr people like myself up the wall like there is nothing but the present you go what <laughs> how can that be there's so much else that's going on well actually there isn't there's only this there's only now all of the projections about the future and all of the stuff that is coming forward from the past of course isn't there an external reality it's there in the internal reality and through you don't need to do zen there are different meditative schools there are different you know whatever religion you're from the mystic elements of your religious upbringing if you are a religious person always has some derivation of that practice and it will be a case of saying okay well how do we get back to taking life in and perceiving life uncut, uncorrupted, unperverted by distortion and deletion and generalization through my own perceptual filters and just taking it as it is moment by moment in this present, knowing that there is only a present moment, the past and the future are just constructs. They're necessary constructs. We shouldn't get rid of them. Um, but sometimes the construct can take over. The map can take over the reality. And that is an imbalance. It's not the way things are supposed to be. The map is not supposed to have more gravitational force than reality itself. But you can think it's quite obvious the ways in which modern culture that has already not started to happen. It's been happening now for several years. The map and the narrative of the reality is taking over reality. And that is a dangerous imbalance. So there you have a macrocosmic problem that can come from a microcosmic problem. So bringing it back to self-sabotage, reducing projection being able to be in the moment being able to connect safely and to feel safe connecting with that which is rather than that which we are thinking about that which is reducing the story that we're telling about reality and just taking reality as it is that probably would take us a long way forward in developing as human beings totally emotionally psychologically uh, spiritually um, but it would also allow us to let go of the falsehoods that we hold inside of ourselves that we think to be true, speak to be true, and act on as though they were true, but are not. These false internal structures, these beliefs, to the point where we could move forward decisively with serenity and with agency in a way that was congruent and that was sane and that made sense. Okay, guys, uh, thank you very much for your time and for your attention. Thank you.